Well, I usually use this uh, morning of our annual congregational meeting to give a one-time sermon about some church vision-related subject. But since we've just got back into our book of Joshua, I decided several weeks ago not to do that. Then I started preparing for the sermon, and I saw God's leading. Our passage today is an amazing account of unity, and one of the key church values that we have is unity. As we go through the sermon today, it's my anticipation that God would reignite our passion for him as the bond of unity that we have with each other. Well, don't you just love those military family reunion videos? You know, where the mom or dad has been off serving in the military for months, even years, away from their family, serving in harm's way, missing precious moments with their family to serve us, to serve our country. Sometimes there's that great big reveal, you know, maybe at a school function or at a birthday party. Sometimes it's just the overwhelming joy that overflows in the family as they see their loved one at the airport. Often bring us to tears of joy and thankfulness. Well, that's kind of how our passage in Joshua starts off today. The major wars are over. The, the land and the kings of Canaan have been conquered. It's now time to go and fully occupy the land. It's now time to send back the tribes of, of Reuben and Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh back to their inheritance on the other side of the Jordan River. If you remember, Moses had given the east side of the Jordan River to those tribes upon one important condition, that their fighting men must cross the Jordan with the rest of the people of Israel and stay and fight with them to secure the promised land. All of this is detailed for us in Numbers chapter 32. At the crossing of the Jordan River, Joshua 4.12 tells us that that's exactly what they did. The sons of Reuben, the sons of Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, they passed over armed before the people of Israel, just as Moses had told them. They were the first ones to cross the Jordan on the dry ground, leading their way, showing their unity, proving their commitment to God and to their brothers. Well, now it's seven years later. The conquest of Canaan took around seven years, and they have kept their promise. And now it's time to go home. Now it's time to cross back over the Jordan to the east side, to their families, to their homes, to a great reunion. Well, please turn in your Bibles with me to Joshua chapter 22. Joshua chapter 22. I want to read for us God's word, all of Joshua chapter 22. At that time, Joshua summoned the Reubenites and the Gadites and the half-tribe of Manasseh and said to them, You have kept all that Moses the servant of the Lord commanded you and have obeyed my voice and all that I have commanded you. You have not forsaken your brothers these many days down to this day, but have been careful to keep the charge of the Lord your God. And now the Lord your God has given rest to your brothers as he promised them. Therefore, turn 
and go to your tents in the land where your possession lies, which Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you on the other side of the Jordan. Only be careful to observe the commandment and the law that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you to love the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to keep his commandments, and to cling to him and to serve him with all your heart and with all your soul. So Joshua blessed them and sent them away, and they went to their tents. Now to the one half tribe of Manasseh, Moses had given a possession in Bashan, but to the other half, Joshua had given a possession beside their brothers in the land west of the Jordan. And when Joshua sent them away to their homes and blessed them, he said to them, Go back to your tents with much wealth and with very much livestock, with silver and gold and bronze and iron and with much clothing. Divide the spoil of your enemies with your brothers. So the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh returned home, parting from the people of Israel at Shiloh, which is in the land of Canaan, to go to the land of Gilead, their own land of which they had possessed themselves by the command of the Lord through Moses. And when they came to the region of the Jordan that is in the land of Canaan, the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh built there an altar by the Jordan, an altar of imposing size. And the people of Israel heard it said, Behold, the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh have built an altar at the frontier of the land of Canaan in the region about the Jordan on the side that belongs to the people of Israel. And when the people of Israel heard of it, the whole assembly of the people of Israel gathered at Shiloh to make war against them. Then the people of Israel sent to the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh in the land of Gilead, Phinehas, the son of Eleazar the priest. And with him ten chiefs, one from each of the tribal families of Israel, every one of them the head of a family among the clans of Israel. And they came to the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh in the land of Gilead. And they said to them, Thus says the whole congregation of the Lord, What is this breach of faith that you have committed against the God of Israel in turning away this day from following the Lord by building yourselves an altar this day in rebellion against the Lord? Have we not had enough of sin at Peor? from which even yet we have not cleansed ourselves and for which there came a plague upon the congregation of the Lord, that you too must turn away this day from following the Lord? And if you rebel against the Lord today, then tomorrow he'll be angry with the whole congregation of Israel. But now, if the land of your possession is unclean, pass over into the Lord's land where the Lord's tabernacle stands, and take for yourselves a possession among us. Only do not rebel against the Lord, or make us as rebels by building for yourselves an altar other than the altar of the Lord our God. Did not Achan, the son of Zerah, break faith in the matter of devoted things, and wrath fell upon all the congregation of Israel? And he did not perish alone for his iniquity. Then the people of Reuben the people of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh said in answer to the heads of the family of Israel, The mighty one, God, the Lord, the mighty one, God, the Lord, he knows. And let Israel itself know. 
If it was in rebellion or in breach of faith against the Lord, do not spare us today for building an altar to turn away from following the Lord. Or if we did so to offer burnt offerings or grain offerings or peace offerings on it, may the Lord himself take vengeance. No, but we did it from fear that in time to come, your children might say to our children, what have you to do with the Lord, the God of Israel? For the Lord has made the Jordan a boundary between us and you people of Reuben and people of Gad. You have no portion in the Lord. So your children might make our children cease to worship the Lord. Therefore we said, let us now build an altar, not for burnt offerings nor for sacrifice, but to be a witness between us and you, between our generations after us, that we do perform the servants of the Lord in his presence with our burnt offerings and sacrifices and peace offerings. So your children will not say to our children in the time to come, you have no portion in the Lord. And so we thought, if this should be said to us or to our descendants in time to come, we should say, behold, the copy of the altar of the Lord, which our fathers made, not for burnt offerings, nor for sacrifice, but to be a witness between us and you. Far be it from us that we should rebel against the Lord and turn away this day from following the Lord by building an altar for burnt offerings, grain offerings, or sacrifice other than the altar of the Lord our God that stands before his tabernacle. When Phinehas the priest and the chief of the congregation, the heads of the family of Israel who were with him, heard the words that the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the people of Manasseh spoke, it was good in their ears. And Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the priest said to the people of Reuben and to the people of Gad and to the people of Manasseh, today we know that the Lord is in our midst because you have not committed this breach of faith against the Lord. Now you have delivered the people of Israel from the hand of the Lord. Then Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the priest, and the chiefs returned from the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the land of Gilead to the land of Canaan, to the people of Israel, and brought back word to them. And the report was good in the eyes of the people of Israel. And the people of Israel blessed God and spoke no more of making war against them to destroy the land where the people of Reuben and the people of Gad were settled. The people of Reuben and the people of Gad called the altar witness. For they said, It is a witness between us that the Lord is God. Father, we pray now, having read your word, that you will illumine it, that, Spirit, you will teach us truths through it. And that this history, this event that happened all those years ago would come alive to us today and and change us today. In Jesus' name, amen. First, we see in our passage today the commendation given in verses 1 through 9. See, these Transjordan tribes, they have kept their word. They had obeyed God's command. The war was over. Their vow was fulfilled. Go to your tents. Go back to your families. Go back to your land. It's time to go home. Now, their sacrifice was great. 
Not only had they continually put themselves in harm's way for seven years, but their communication, their connection to home would have been very, very, very limited. This is a really big thank you. This is a really big thank you for keeping your word. Thank you for your love and sacrifice. It's rightful to honor those who have sacrificed on your behalf. Joshua does that. And we do that. We honor those who have served us and sacrificed for us in the military. We say thank you on a regular basis. But now in Joshua's parting words to them, it wasn't just a thank you. It was also a challenge. Like any good leader, Joshua takes advantage of this very important moment and he challenges the Transjordan tribes to remain faithful to God. They are leaving the promised land. They are leaving the immediate connection with their kinsmen. They are leaving where the presence of the tabernacle is and the offerings and the sacrifice and the priests. Verse 5 lists six different specific challenges. Six things that if they do them, they will stay true and faithful to the one true God. And these are six things that if we do them, we'll stay true and faithful to the Lord our God. Look there at verse 5. It says, be careful to observe the commandment and the law that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you. Love the Lord your God. Walk in his ways. Keep his commandments. Cling to him. Hold fast to him. And serve him with your whole heart and soul. Observe. Love. Walk. Keep. Cling. Serve. These are words for us. If they will observe God's law and know it and follow it, if they will love God and walk in his ways and keep his commandments and cling to him and hold fast to him and serve him with their whole heart and soul, they will stay true and not wander from the faith. That's Joshua's challenge to this tribe. It's the same for every true believer, a 24-7 life of devotion. It's knowing God's word. It's loving God and being in a true, committed relationship with him. It is living your daily, everyday life according to his truth. It's keeping his commandments as the highest priority of our life. It's clinging to him. It's holding fast to him like the most precious jewel, like the greatest desire of our lives. It's serving him not just with outward actions, but from all that's within us, with our heart and our soul. See, fidelity to God requires all of us. Every part of us, our mind, our emotions, our wills, our body. So 24-7, all in, life of devotion. How about us? Does that describe our commitment to the Lord? Now, not only did he thank them, and not only did he challenge them, but he also blessed them. And verses 6 and 7 says that Joshua blessed them. He sent them home with the blessings of God and with the blessings of the people. In the midst of all this goodwill, in the midst of all this thanks and recognition, just as the people leave to go home, as they get to the Jordan River, a major crisis arises. In verses 12, 10 through 12, they build an altar. Before they cross the Jordan River, on the west side, they build a giant altar. 
There are some possible hints in the Hebrew that they built the altar near Gilgal. If you remember right, remember Gilgal was that first encampment of where the, the Israelite people first came into the promised land. If you remember, Gilgal is where that pile of 12 stones were taken from that riverbed in the Jordan as a memorial to remember God's miracle. Verse 10 says, the altar was gigantic. It says it's an imposing size. It was so big that it could be viewed from the other side of the Jordan River. It was large. It was impressive. It was easily visible. And it was wrong. Because there's only one place that God had ordained for sacrifices to be made. That was at the temple by the priests. To make another place of sacrifice was to defy God. Was to deny his rightful place. Was to disobey God's word. It was a rejection of God and how he had revealed himself. And it was instead making God to be what they wanted. And the people of Israel, the the ten tribes that actually occupied the true nation of Israel, gathered together at Shiloh where the tabernacle is to make war against their own countrymen. They just couldn't believe it. How could they do this? How could they reject the one true God? How can you do that? We have to go stop them. Such a desire for faithfulness and fidelity to God and to his word is to be commended. See, in our our world of compromise, in our world where truth is whatever you want it to be, we have to stand strong and clear on the absolute truth of God's word. Jude 3 says, we must contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. And as we know, they ended up being wrong about why the Transjordan brothers had had built the altar. But they were right to have such a passion for God, to have such a desire for the truth, to have such a commitment that God be honored and worshipped As he said in his word, they were zealous for the purity of the faith. We can't just let our brothers enter into such apostasy. So to quote a famous movie line that seems appropriate, what we have here is a failure to communicate. The Transjordan tribe didn't communicate what they were doing when the ten tribes instantly assumed bad motives, judging them, on circumstantial evidence. The quickest way to break unity in any family or in any church is to ascribe bad motives to something, to assume you know when you don't know, to make a decision on circumstantial evidence before ever talking to the person. You know, when you do that, you often just end up creating a problem where one never, ever existed. We're to love our families and we're to love one another in the church. 1 Corinthians 13.7 says, Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. See, instead of assuming we know, instead of ascribing bad motives, true biblical love believes. Love hopes. 
Love accepts. Love assumes good motives. Love gives the other person the benefit of the doubt. Unity in marriage, unity in our families, unity in our church requires us as believers to accept, not assume. To act, not react. To believe, not accuse. The ten tribes are on the verge of making a very grave error because they think they know, but they don't. What we have here is a failure to communicate. How often is that our problem? In verse 12, they're gathering for war. But in verse 13, someone starts to actually think, hey, let's send a delegation instead. In verses 13 through 19, the crisis is confronted. The delegation is led by Phineas, the priest, and, and a leader from each of the ten tribes. The crisis is confronted, not with weapons, but with communication. They address the issue directly. They have rushed to judgment. But at least now, they've taken the next right step. They do a couple other things right, too. They don't go talking to other people about the perceived problem they have with their brothers. They don't go gossiping and spreading rumors all the while, not having the full story, not having the right information, sharing their misunderstandings and their, 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 their bad assumptions and bad motives. And they don't ignore it. They don't downplay the importance of being unified. They don't just let a virtual wall be built, separating them and breaking their relationship with their brothers. They go and they proactively seek reconciliation. They think they know what's going on. They're wrong, but at least they're going to talk about it. Folks, that's so important. There is zero chance of reconciliation if there is zero communication. The person reaching out with reconciliation and the person receiving reconciliation, both need to have an attitude of reconciliation, of communication. Galatians 6 talks about going to your brother with a spirit of gentleness, with humility, coming alongside of them to help them bear their burdens. Perhaps there's someone in your life that you need to reconcile with, a family member, a friend, a co-worker, a fellow church attender. So proactively do it. And do it with the spirit of gentleness. Do it with humility and love. Proactively step forward and be the first one to open up communication and to offer reconciliation. Seek to understand. Go to help bear their burden. Offer genuine forgiveness. Show that you're a true follower of Christ. Just as Jesus said in John 13, 35, by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Reconciliation isn't just a word. It's an action. Maybe today, this is the application. Maybe today, this is what God is challenging you to do. John J. Davis was a professor of mine, seminary, and he wrote, the unifying factor in ancient Israel was not her culture, architecture, economy, or even their military objectives. 
the long-range unifying factor was her worship of Yahweh. There are many diverse things about these diverse tribes, but they had one main thing that bound them together, Yahweh. The Lord is God. Deuteronomy 6, 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. See, it was that one truth that bound them together. It's those last words of our chapter in chapter 22. The Lord is God, Yahweh is God. That's why the ten tribes responded so strongly. They thought their brothers were rejecting God. Look there at verse 16. It says, Thus says the whole congregation of the Lord, What is this breach of faith that you've committed against the God of Israel in turning away this day from following the Lord by building yourselves an altar this day in rebellion against the Lord? How can you be turning away? How can you do this breach of faith? They thought when they built this altar that they were rejecting the one true God, the, the God that brought them together, the unity of their nation. And the next point was, how can you be doing this? Because it hurts all of us. See, the nation of Israel had this very deep sense of unity. If one part fell off the rail, they all would suffer the consequences. And then they give two examples here. Uh, The ten tribes from the past of where God's judgment for sin for a few brought hard judgment and hardship on them all. At Peor. That's described in Numbers chapter 25. Some of the men of Israel worshipped the idol Baal, and they committed adultery with women from Moab. And a judgment plague came from God, came upon the whole nation until the sin was dealt with. The other example that they give is the sin of Achan. This sin that led to the only defeat of the nation of Israel in the battle of those seven years for the promised land and led to the death of many soldiers. See, the ten tribes were justly concerned, for they had learned that the whole is affected by its parts. The many is affected by the few. Do you ever think, do you ever realize that's the same principle that's true for the church? See, the church is a, is a unified one one body. First Corinthians twelve twenty seven says, Now you are the body of Christ, individually members of it. Romans twelve, four through five describes our oneness this way. It says, For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. Think about this amazing truth. Think about what's being taught here. Through the Holy Spirit, we are together the body of Christ. We are one together. And through the Holy Spirit, we are part of one another in Christ. That's unity. 1 Corinthians 12, 26 says, If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. It's a great truth. It's a truth that the ten tribes took very seriously on that day. And it's a truth that we do well to take seriously in our day. How do we maintain our unity together in Christ? 
How we do that directly affects the health and strength of the whole church. There are no Christian islands. There are no Christian lone rangers. We are one. One body of Christ. One with him and one with each other. Is that how you look at church? Is that how you see the unity of the church? You take it that seriously? Do you understand that your actions affect the whole body, all of us? Do you realize just how indispensable a part of the body of Christ you are? Just how important you are to the health and the strength of the whole. See, if you took your part of the body of Christ seriously, how would that change the way you connect and you serve and you love in your church? Now, you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. Well, this giant altar has altered the unity of the nation. I waited the whole sermon to say that line. I'm going to say that again. (laughs) This giant altar has altered the unity of the nation. The Transjordan tribes have now been confronted. Now, what's their response? How's the crisis going to be resolved? It's resolved almost instantaneously. Look there at verse 22. The first thing that they do just explodes out of them and passionately to proclaim their allegiance to God. They proclaim, you can almost hear them shouting, the mighty one God, the Lord, the mighty one God, the Lord, he knows. They immediately in response to the ten tribes question, use three names of God and repeat them twice. El, Elohim, Yahweh. El, Elohim, Yahweh. And then they call on God as the judge of their motives. They had not in any way left their unity with their brothers. They had not in any way left their sure belief in the one true God. This altar has nothing to do with that. It was not an altar for sacrifice. They never intended to use it to sacrifice. It was an altar of remembrance. It was a memorial. It wasn't an altar to destroy unity. It was an altar to promote unity. They built the altar as a witness for generations to come that the Transjordan tribes were true Israelites and their allegiance was to worship the one true God. They delineate that out so well. Verses 24 and following. We did it from fear that in time to come your children might say to our children, what have you to do with the Lord, the God of Israel? For the Lord has made the Jordan a boundary between us and you, of Reuben and the people of Gad. You have no portion of the Lord, so your children might make our children cease to worship the Lord. Remember back in those six things that Joshua had commanded them? Remember how it said to cling to him. This is what they're doing. They're clinging to him, and they're clinging to him in a way that they want to make sure that their children can cling to him. They build the the altar to preserve the future unity of the whole nation. Their goal, their heart, their fidelity was in the right place. They built the altar because they feared 
that future generations would forget them and then reject them from worshiping the one true God. And they built the altar so that that their children would have a reminder that they're part of the nation of Israel and that their worship and their allegiance is due only to the one true God of Israel. There was no national crisis. This was actually a moment of national unity. Psalm 133.1 says, Behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. Verses 30 through 34 is unity restored. After hearing their reply, it says of the delegation from the ten tribes in verse 30 that it was good in their eyes. Verse 31 says, And Phinehas, the son of Eliezer, the priest, said to the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the people of Manasseh, Today we know that the Lord is in our midst because you've not committed this breach of faith against the Lord. The crisis is averted. Unity has been restored. And when the delegation goes back and tells the people of Israel at Shiloh, their response their response as well was, was good in, the, uh, in their eyes. Verse 34, such a positive verse. The people of Reuben and the people of Gad called the altar witness. They said, it is a witness between us that the Lord is God. Literally, the last phrase is, Yahweh is the God. It's Yahweh Ha Elohim. Elohim has the prefix the on it. Yahweh is the God. They are clearly saying that Yahweh, the self-revealed, covenant-keeping God of Israel, that God is the one and only true God, and he has our full allegiance. It's a clear statement, a strong statement of unity and fidelity to God. Yahweh is our God, and together we are one people. Yahweh, the unifying focus of the nation of Israel. We find our unity in the exact same clear, strong truth. Jesus is the Lord. Jesus is our God, and together we are one people. One commentator wrote, believers find their unity in one place of sacrifice, a hill called Calvary. By dying for his people, Jesus unites all of them through his atoning work and glorious resurrection. True Christian unity is rooted in the gospel because the finished work of Christ is the basis and the criteria for all Christian fellowship. When we look at other Christians, we love them and embrace them. Not because they wear our label or rally behind our pet causes, but because they were bought with the same price. When Jesus stretched out his arms on the cross, he not only reached out to bring God and man together, he also enfolded in those arms everyone for whom he was dying. The gospel, who Jesus is and what he has done for our salvation, provides the foundation for us to embrace our fellow believers in him. We are one. We are one. Why? Because Jesus 
has made us one. He has enfolded us together in his arms. The rallying cry of our unity is not in a denomination. It's not in a creed. It's not in a statement of faith. As important and as valuable as those things are, no, the rallying cry of our unity is in a person. Jesus Christ, our Lord. It's the gospel, who Jesus is and what he has done for our salvation. What binds us together as one is Jesus. What binds us together is our fidelity to him, his word, his agenda, his will, his love, his plan, his gospel, his glory, his church. These are not some hyperbole words for some, some pastor. These are the very truth, the very fabric of our strength, the very essence of our unity, the very reason for our existence, the very heartbeat of our church is to glorify Jesus Christ, Him first, in every area, at all times. The minute it becomes about us and what we want is the very minute that the unity of the body of Christ is threatened. We will at all costs, as a church, put Jesus Christ first, his kingdom, his righteousness, his worship, his purpose first. For there's nothing else we can do. There is no other alternative. It's all we have. And it's enough. More than enough. May our community say of us, there is a church that loves Jesus. There is a church that loves each other. There is a church that loves us. Let's pray. Father, now we thank you that this history, this, this account from all those years ago, would teach us so amazing, poignant truth in our lives, in our church today. Reconciliation, Lord, challenge us to be reconcilers, to be communicators, to reach out proactively with understanding and love. Teach us today how important we are to each other, how indispensable every part is to the body of Christ, how we need each other how we're thankful for each other. Lord, we thank you for Poland Village Baptist Church, this church on a hill in Poland. May it be to you beautiful and bring glory to Jesus' name. In his name we pray, amen.